welcome to episode three of the podcast with me, Mark Chappell. Before we carry on, I just want to make a shameless plug. I am starting a newsletter in the next couple of weeks. If that's something you might be interested in, please go to my website, www.markchappell.me and fill in the form on the homepage. Right, enough self-promotion. Uh, my next guest is Catherine Kimber. Catherine Kimber is a non-diet registered dietitian. She's a certified intuitive eating counsellor and the founder of Nude Nutrition. We cover a huge amount of ground in this podcast regarding food, diet, well-being, the stigma around body shape, size and weight. As per usual, all the links to Kat's work will be in the show notes. So, without much further ado, let's get on with the interview. Right, I'm joined by Kat Kimber. Hi Kat, how are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. I'm just struggling uh, with the typical problem I have that whenever I start a podcast, something really loud happens outside. So if there's any background noise, I do apologise, but I have got a man up on a ladder outside my window that I'm not entirely sure what he's doing. But we'll, we'll carry on regardless and uh, hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, it's, it's always the way, isn't it, when you, when you need it to be quiet? something happens every time last time someone decided to dig up the road in front of me and I've got a neighbor who's obsessed with strimming his hedges every day um but he only does it the minute I plan a podcast so there we go so, so Kat <laughs> you're a dietitian now when I look Instagram and sort of social media I see all these titles dietitian nutritionist naturopath all these things I have literally no idea what the difference is. Would you mind kind of explaining what the difference is? Yeah, it's really confusing. And it's also really frustrating for me being in, in, the, in the world, especially on, online, um, when the, the wellness industry is not regulated. Mm. Um, but so dietitians are, we're the only qualified healthcare professionals that can assess and diagnose and treat dietary and nutritional problems in individuals and also on a wider public health level so we can work with sick people healthy people um, and when I say healthy I mean those that don't have um, new conditions and um, we are governed by law as well so we are governed by a professional body the health and care professions council the HCPC a bit like physios and occupational therapists and nurses and um, yeah, so we're protected by law and we have an ethical code that we need to work to work towards to ensure that we're always working to a high standard. And we're classically trained to work in the NHS, but we can also work in private practice, industry, education, research. Um, and nutritionists tend to work in different roles. Usually they're qualified to provide information around food and healthy eating, so health improvement of the health healthy population as opposed to working with those that have medical conditions yeah cool thank you for clearing that up um what what attracted you to becoming a dietitian well i have a little bit of a backstory as to the reason why i do the work that i do now and i always wanted to be a chef when i was a kid and my mum was a nurse and I think it was probably just quite a good marriage of 
working with food but in healthcare and I didn't know what dietetics was when I first you know when I was looking to go to university but in order to become a dietitian there's a minimum requirement to do a undergraduate degree in nutrition and dietetics and just going back to the qualifications nutritionists anyone can call themselves a nutritionist um but there are some awesome nutritionists out there doing some amazing things and it's those that are that are registered with the association for nutrition that have usually done a they've done a, a, a level of education to meet a level of requirements um, so I don't want to kind of undermine amazing nutritionists out there that are doing amazing work just have to be careful for finding the people that ha have got the qualifications and, and have done you know done the, the background work but in terms of my own reason for getting into the work that I do now do you want me to go into a bit of the story behind that oh please do I would love a story love a little bit of a story I, go, so yeah. I was quite a chubby kid and I you know at the age of 10 11 12 felt like carrying any extra weight on me was something that wasn't necessarily acceptable and in my teenage years led me on to having this constant battle with food which I now know was related to restricting my food in order to control my weight mm. and I didn't know but I was essentially dieting and this consumed quite a lot of my thoughts and my life and led me on to becoming a dietitian where I then worked in the NHS for three years, did a master's in clinical research, went and worked in a weight loss clinic in Chelsea to help other people lose weight and got quite involved in this program myself, which triggered all the issues that I'd had growing up as well. So for the last mm. 10 years, it kind of just exacerbated everything. And for me, I was in this constant and really exhausting cycle of being good in quotes with my eating and healthy and then perhaps losing a bit of weight and then just feeling totally out of control and I like to describe the cycle of, of, of being in like diet land and then falling off the wagon and being in donut land <laughs> uh, and I know a lot of people resonate with that although I, that I want to just kind of highlight that I didn't I don't know where that came from someone talked about it in that way before I can't remember the name of the person that first introduced it to me like that um but I think that does explain things quite nicely where a lot of people I work with fall they're either in diet land or donut land and so I was in that and experiencing a lot of shame because I was a qualified dietitian and I still wasn't able to kind of get my own act together around food and living in this intense fear of if I gain weight um intense fear of I've gained weight, but I knew that I couldn't keep restricting because I, that wasn't working for me either. And it was affecting lots of areas of my life in terms of social life, my relationship to exercise and sport. And it wasn't until a few months into working at this weight loss clinic that I went to a seminar at the Royal Society of Medicine in central London. And there was a speaker there talking about disordered eating. And I already, you know, I knew it was something that existed. I knew about eating disorders, but I think I just kind of buried my head under it. And I was like, hang on a minute. I've had issues for about 10 years and they're still going on. And so this can't keep going on. And that's when I looked to find different counsellors and, and nobody really had the knowledge to help me with these problems, which mm. I now know affect so many people. <laughs> um, and that's when I 
it led me down the path of finding the work that I now do, which is sort of intuitive eating, which I can talk more about. And really what it helped me to understand is that what's wrong is the culture that we live in that teaches us that we can't be happy or healthy or successful until we fit into these certain body shapes and sizes. And for many of us, trying to eat in a way that fixes our body into a size that someone else has told us we should be can lead to all sorts of complex issues with food. And I've seen this personally, but also in the research and also in people that I've worked with. Hmm. And so the work that I now do is I'm very passionate about helping other people out of this cycle. I love that. I love yeah. that. And I, I think this is where it, the work you do caught my eye. I certainly identify with some of what you're saying in your backstory on a personal level. Mm. Um, as a child, I was very overweight, but I was also very ill. So I was on corticosteroids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the weight gain associated with that. And as a child, obviously, children, I don't always see difference don't they and there was a lot of what would be called bullying I suppose around that and through my 20s I certainly went through that I was either an exercise freak or I guess the term would be orthorexic I was very careful of what I ate but to an obsessive level mm-hmm. and then it would manifest itself in different ways but there was always this belief that to be seen as a success or attractive you had mm-hmm. to look a certain way and you had to have this kind of physique and I'm quite short and stocky at the best of times. So I'm never going to look like a Abercrombie and Fitch model. Yeah, yeah. And I used to joke about it, but it was a real thing. And I used to really hang myself worth on how I looked. So it's really interesting. So can you tell me more about intuitive eating and that philosophy? Yeah. And I think it will add to your point about mentions orthorexia or orthorexic type behavior so that's an unhealthy obsession just for listeners unhealthy obsession with healthy eating and I think a lot of these behaviors I'm now seeing have just become normalized they're a normal part of being a human being and I'll I'll go on to talk a little bit more about how that, that can be so so sneaky and damaging um, but the framework that I use for, for support for supporting people is intuitive eating, which on a really basic level is about making you the boss of you, mm. not relying on external cues such as the time of day, meal plans, calorie point systems to tell you what your body needs. And it was developed about 25 years ago or it was come across around 25 years ago by two amazing dietitians, Evelyn Traboli and Elise Resch in America. And they were working in a way that I was working similarly in the weight loss clinic that I was in, helping people to lose weight in a healthy way and working with really successful, intelligent people that were all having the same sorts of problems, which was keep coming back, the weight just comes back on, start again. And Evelyn and Elise realised like it just didn't sit well with them. And actually they were contributing to the problem and needed to find a different way and look to find a different way of helping people improve their relationship with food, their health. And they created this model, which at the time was research inspired. It was drawing on different camps of research to create a framework to support people 
and a researcher called Tracy Tilka in an, an American university found this really interesting and asked how can this be measured and now we have over 125 different studies to support its use in helping people break out of a negative relationship with food so we now whilst we know this works in practice you know on an anecdotal level we now have lots of science and statistics to show that intuitive eaters tend to eat more variety of foods they have more appreciation for their bodies protection against eating disorders um, more connection with their body and mm -hmm. interestingly there was a um, study done not that long ago so it was an eight-year follow-up study in young adolescents from the ages of 11 to 21 they followed them over 10 years and found that those who scored higher on on the intuitive eating scale which Tracy Tilker developed were more protected against binge eating, eating disorders, and just really encouraging that this approach really helps people break out of this negative cycle. But on a more scientific mm. level, intuitive eating is based on a, uh, around a concept called interoceptive awareness. Don't know if you've heard of that term before. Uh, that's a new one on me, uh, Kat. Would you mind just yeah, sort of so expanding? Interoceptive awareness sounds pretty boring because it's quite a technical term, but this is our ability to perceive physical sensations in the body. So if you think about needing to go for a wee, um, when we need to go to the toilet, mm -hmm. how do we know that we need to go to the toilet? I'm asking a question. Oh, you're asking me. That that silence is all that's I love that silence. <laughs> it's like I don't know how to go to the toilet now. People thinking, uh, yeah, he, he's a he's a really great guy. <laughs> yes. So it's it's a it's a physiological uh feeling, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. we a get a bit of discomfort in our bladder. We're like, oh, I need to go. And we, and we tend not to think about it too much. But and then if we need to go for a wee, maybe an hour later usually we just go we don't really think about it there's no judgment attached to that and so this is this is our ability to perceive these sensations and act upon them and interestingly every single emotion that we experience whether it be boredom stress tiredness the reason that we're able to voice this emotion is because we have some sort of physical sensation around that um, and the same when it comes to hunger but a lot of people judge hunger don't listen to it because we are kind of sold this idea that well, we, you know, we can't be trusted around food. And if you think about young children, they are really good. If anyone that's listening knows any young toddlers, they're really good at knowing when they're hungry, when they've had enough, you know, they might seek out a wide variety of different foods that some days they're going to eat the same as a parent, some days they're going to eat next to nothing, and they're just really in touch with their own needs. And as we grow older, we're given all of these messages mm. like, you've got to finish your vegetables before you can have your pudding. And that sort of thing does two things. It, one, it undermines our own ability to self-regulate when we've had enough food. And two, it teaches us that food has a moral value. Um, and then we grow older and we get all these messages about our body and how we should look, whether it be from parents, doctors, media, and then we try to eat in a way, you know, that, that, then we start to develop this complex relationship with food. 
and um, intuitive eating is a framework with 10 principles basically to help people get back to that place of being more in tune with their own body in relation we talked about body size and shape but if we mm. look at weight and health um, as sort of a, a correlate where does this tie into that because would I be right in saying and I'm coming back from my yeah. previous life working in hospitals and operating theatres and things that we were taught rightly or wrongly and I'm, I'm, I'm going to yeah. open up to your greater expertise on this that people say with a higher BMI and I appreciate BMI is a very poor measurement because you could have someone who has had a lot of fatty tissue, adipose tissue uh, with a high BMI, and you could have someone who was very muscular, say a rugby player, that would have a high BMI, but was, relatively speaking, a fitter patient. And certainly higher BMI patients were known to have, or believed to have, maybe that's the right way of saying it, rather than known, uh, to have higher sort of post-operative complications or pre-operative complications. And therefore, um, there was always a push if patients were deemed overweight to ask them to lose weight before they had surgery, for example, for their own safety. How does that kind of tie into the work you do, that kind of way of thinking? I was taught the same thing. It was like, we know that weight loss is difficult for people. We know that weight loss is possible. We know weight maintenance is really difficult for a lot of people. And we just need to find a way to help people achieve that in their own way. And there are endless amounts of studies that show short-term health improvements with short-term reductions in weight. And usually these studies mm. last no more than a year, six months. And usually these people are doing something to achieve weight loss. And so maybe they're changing their diet or they're changing their exercise habits. When both of these things have been shown to improve health independent of where the weight loss occurs. And so these studies don't necessarily mm. prove that the weight loss itself affects health. They, they, and they don't often consider the harm that dieting can do to people. And if you think about, there was an interesting study done on liposuction that controlled for behavior change. And they found simply removing fat from someone's body with liposuction had no influence on health markers. And so this is about, I think well, when, we, when we think about weight loss and, and putting people on diets, what needs to be considered here is, is the impact that this can have on people because there are groups of people out there mm. that can lose weight, make some changes, you know, lose some weight, feel good. You know, it might improve their health. You know, they're doing other behaviors, feel good. And, and the, the benefits, the, the pros and the cons are kind of neutral. There's no massive negatives. There's some positives perhaps. Um, and it has no massive impact. Then there are other groups of people where maybe there are some negative side effects, but the positives of pursuing weight loss, weight control outweigh the negatives. And then there are a huge group of people that I work with where the negatives outweigh the positives. And the interestingly, when people ask me, but what about my health? One of the single biggest predictors of weight gain is dieting. And dieting has been twisted mm. and morphed into the wellness industry you know people come to me now and say i don't diet i do the whole 30 or i do keto or 
all of these things and um but quite often the problems that i will see with clients is that they're frequently dieting they've got lots of anxiety around certain foods their weight is chronically fluctuating and maybe they've got rigid rules around food maybe there's lots of guilt and shame and stress attached to eating losing control emotional eating and so i think when we're asking someone to lose lose like lose weight for health reasons i think we need to be really conscious of the impact and the history of that client um, and interestingly there was there was a study that came out in 2012 looking at it was an american study where they followed about 12,000 people over 14 years and they looked at body mass index and risk of death and there were four categories so um sorry if you imagine if you imagine a graph on the left hand side you've got risk of death and along the bottom you've got lifestyle behaviors those four lifestyle behaviors are not drinking too much not smoking eating a um, a good quality diet which is usually indicated by fruit and vegetable consumption and regular movement those that are in the higher bmi category doing none of those lifestyle behaviors have a higher risk of death and so do so do those that are in a in a smaller body have a higher risk of death but not as high as those in a higher weight body um, but as soon as those individuals embark in embark on just one of those lifestyle behaviors then the risk of death significantly comes down and then someone in a higher in the higher bmi category doing all of those four behaviors has the same risk of death as someone in a smaller body engaging in those behaviors and so this is about understanding someone's background someone's history and helping encourage them to engage in behaviors that are going to help provide them with a sort of sustainable sustainable change to their you know health does that make sense it does it does i think um what you're speaking to is often i i think in the past we look for yes. the short-term goal which yeah. is we need to get this operation yeah. done I, i'm just talking from my experience i think it's the best place i can speak from so you think well this is the best way to do that or they need to go and do this and you're absolutely right we only yeah. focus on one thing so it, for example in a hospital an anesthetist will be fixated on the airway uh, the surgeon will be fixated on the anatomy and we're looking always at very small parts yeah. of the patient but not the patient as a whole and I actually see this now moving to my background, went through uh, that work to psychotherapy, to coaching. I see this a lot as well. It, what you're saying in food as actually translates to, I think, personal development, that we look for these massive short-term gains that aren't sustainable, even like managing negative thoughts. Well, there's nothing wrong with negative thoughts. It's how you deal with them. But now we've got this industry that says you can't have negative thoughts, which just creates more stress because it's just not, mentally possible so it's a way i see yeah. so many parallels of what you're saying but with and not you know looking at that long-term picture actually yeah. of that person's well-being beyond their very narrow measurable yeah. health kpis shall we call them so i think i think yeah there's it's really interesting it's quite unusual for me to hear this is why i liked 
you know, so I, I was conditioned to say, well, this patient, you know, can't have surgery in this unit because their BMI is over 40, regardless if that guy was, say, a prop in rugby and was super fit and was, wouldn't be a problem. And yet someone who was maybe 40.5, but actually we, we would make a big deal out of it and probably for the patient as well. It would, yeah. it would seem like we've created a lot of fuss um, which huge. I wonder what the and I see that I see that side that effect and what we're not taught in the in the you know healthcare professionals is the limited evidence to support the long-term benefits of weight loss so we know that we know that weight loss mm. is possible but for the majority the weight is regained within a two to five year period and the most people end up being at their pre-intervention pre-diet weight and 30 to 60 percent of those that that um, that gain the weight back tend to regain it plus more so a lot of the people that I work with when we look at their initial mm. timeline of when did you first start dieting what's happened one they might have yo-yoed up and down for a number of years which is that that yo-yoing is is strongly associated with an increased risk of heart disease but not only that the weight is only ever increased and then what can happen is that people might only engage in certain behaviors when they're on a diet so maybe they'll only engage in doing exercise when they're moving sorry when they're when they're on something and so in terms of the you you talked about like the medical intervention yes it doesn't necessarily look at that individual as a whole there is a there is a lot of stigma and um, discrimination that happens in the healthcare setting and towards those that are in high weight bodies the higher the bmi the more discrimination is faced and a lot of the the clients that i work with just don't go to the doctors anymore and they'll hold off until they're like mm. properly sick until they need to go to the doctors because they don't want to go there if that if all they're going to be told all they're going to be told is well we can't do anything until you've lost weight when actually they've got a strong history of an eating disorder or very disordered eating or they've yo-yoed all their life and it's just really discouraging and, and prevents a lot of people seeking healthcare but also engaging in in exercise as well um and so it's yeah it's usually not it's what we're taught in the medical profession but it's not helpful for a lot of mm. people and in terms of the medical implications of operating on someone or allowing someone to have access to treatment because of their size is a really complex one and a lot of people in the sort of health at every size world would argue that more needs to be done to upskill professionals to be able to work with those or operate on those that are in different body like higher higher mm. weight bodies and i don't know what you'd have to say to that being in that industry but and working in that space but it's a real problem yeah i think it's it's a tricky one uh, it's a tricky one for me because i think yeah, yeah. obviously i have left that profession so i'm and this is my own personal opinion so i'll, I'll yeah. ring fence that <laughs> I spent 12 years in operating theatres in one form or another, uh, including working for a hip replacement company, robotics company, uh, before I ventured into full-time coaching. I think there are, there definitely is a stigma around people who have higher BMIs. 
I also have seen anesthetically that airway management is more complicated. I, I can't, I can't get away from that fact. I've seen it a number of times in my, in my previous career. However, we have so much equipment yeah. now because people are getting bigger. You know, the sizes of the airways have had to get bigger. The, we have bariatric tables, bariatric, as you know, but I was explaining this is the sort of term yeah. used for larger patients. Uh, we have bariatric tables and trolleys and things like that. There are some issues with logistics of having to change because they themselves weigh a lot, um, the equipment. So theatres have to potentially be yeah. moved down to a ground level because of structural integrity there are big big things but uh, it's interesting because we have such a diet culture yeah. and you must look this way regardless yeah. if it's through instagram or magazines or tv but people are getting bigger like a lot of the equipment we had to get in you know bigger chairs longer laparoscopic instruments being the big ones a keyhole surgery you know they are readily available now and the becoming more used readily so the surgeons are more used to them because people do seem to be getting bigger and I'm hope and that has in a way reduced the stigma because it, you see more people but why are people why do you think people are getting bigger when you have this diet culture do you think actually this could be a symptom of the diet culture that this yo-yo and then this kind of complete giving up or what's your what, what do you think yeah. around that I do, I do. And there's a really brilliant documentary called The Men Who Made mm. Us Thin. And it's a BBC documentary that is just, a, it's a, an hour and it's available online, The Men Who Made Us Thin. And it talks about the, it talks about the way, like when diet started, why it started and why we are where we are mm. today. And that dieting is making the population bigger, fatter. Um, and so I do believe that diet in the diet industry has a huge part to play on the way in which we think about food and bodies. And um, there's also a brilliant book if anyone wants to know more about this stuff that I appreciate might be very different to what you've heard before. There's a brilliant book called Body Respect, and it's quite short, but it's by Linda Bacon and Lucy Afrimore. Good name for <laughs> Bacon. It's a good name for. <laughs> yeah yeah she's a she's a dietitian and it's called it's about what conventional health books get wrong leave out and just plain fail to understand about weight um so yeah i do think there's a huge focus on body size and weight when it comes to population health but interestingly when you look at the national statistics the office for national statistics data on life expectancy there's a 10 year difference between those that are living in the most deprived versus the least, least deprived mm. areas in England. And I think this plays to, I was listening to one of your little snippets on Instagram the other day, just how we all come from our own little bubbles and worlds. And it's, we've got to look at the entire individual when we're thinking about health, rather than just focusing on, well, what are they eating? What exercise are they doing? there are so many factors that play into someone's mental and physical health that aren't necessarily in their control yeah i i think it it's a weird thing but i as i've left a certain way of thinking through natural sort of personal evolution you realize how much you you're not seeing in people like we we 
we almost compare avatar to avatar like we're not really seeing the whole person we just we, we look at someone's appearance or the way they speak um, or pertinent now the color of their skin and there's all sorts of stuff that's happening both consciously and unconsciously it's not like people i think deliberately go out to be have a hold stigma about body size i don't believe that's true of all people i think it's just we have been conditioned as we grow up by magazines by tv film stars you know and it's always this boom and bust cycle in the media look how thin i mean adele is your classic example yeah. you know she looked one way she has a divorce um looks like she had the thing called yeah. my friends called the divorce diet where people tend to lose weight as a stressful event um, i've certainly been through that a few times uh, won't, won't go into yeah. those but um yeah it's uh, and then it's like oh look how thin she is and it feels like she can't yeah. win either way it's, it's yeah. like you're either too fat or you're too thin i feel for celebrities i really do because everything is scrutinized and then this is passed down through social media and the news and this message is being almost subliminally programmed into young people um, I'm so glad I didn't grow up with social media. Um, I, I'm yeah. sure I would have had a harder time when I was very big on medication, um, steroids, which gave me the weight gain, that it would have really impacted my mental well-being more so than actually the bullying did at the time. Yeah. And interestingly, there was a recent study published this year looking at the incidence of eating mm. disorders, and that has doubled in the last 20 years. And that was a large systematic review looking at over 90 studies that looked at the incidence of eating disorders. And that's mad. I think if we were looking at any other health condition that had doubled in the past 20 years, something would be done about it. <laughs> um, but diet culture is rampant and eating disorder behavior and you know, restrictive eating is almost like rewarded in today's culture. There's such a focus on body size and what we look like and it just takes us away from it just takes us away from living our lives <laughs> and we lose I think we lose a lot of the joy and pleasure of food when we're labeling it as good and bad and yeah it's just I think it's it's hugely this belief system that we have about how we look um is yeah really problematic I, I agree I agree. And I think like, I think I sense a evidence-based geek in you the same there is in, in me. Um, I, I do love looking at the data and this is true for your field. And then you look at mental health and you think, well, all these things that we've been told to do, or these programs of mental health and say suicide is still on a, a, a increased even, and the more you increase awareness, uh, and this is unpopular yeah. evidence, but uh, talking about suicide awareness seems to increase its its um, incidence and there's an idea of social contagion that you su you suggest yeah. something by raising awareness of it yeah. and I it's really difficult because evidence isn't very sexy you know and it's not always mm. popular it sometimes goes against the yeah. what I call the social cognitive beliefs the idea of the society that this is right or wrong and I, I, I've looked at many things now, even my own beliefs in the stark face of evidence. And you start thinking, heck, I think mm. I've got this wrong. And, and that happened with me with therapy, with coaching. You know, um, 
in the same way that most of the tripes you hear in coaching sound good, they look good on Instagram, but actually they do create problematic issues down the road. Even though the client initially thinks they're doing really well, there's always a crash. And I spoke about this in a previous podcast. There's always a crash further down the line because the, the, the client hasn't been considered as a human being. They've been seen as a problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. And I think that has created a distrust as well. Like a lot of these, a lot of people, you know, you and I, we're only doing the best that we can with the knowledge Absolutely. that we have. And back five years ago, when I was putting people on diets, I was only doing the best that I, that I could with the knowledge that I have. And we're constantly evolving and growing and changing. And, and I think our needs as well vary depending on where we're at. You know, the reason that people might do the work that they do with me is because they've experienced enough pain that they no longer want to go mm. on another meal plan or do something different. So I think there's a need for lots of different people for different things. Um, I've forgotten where I was going. That's with that, fine. That's fine. I, I, I totally, yeah. I totally resonate with that. Like I have clients come to me who've gone through all the self-help bullshit and, all, and they've been on loads of coaches and courses and, and they, yeah. they get that initial, Oh yeah, things are great. I'm amazing. I can think positive and the universe is going to reward me. And then life kind of happens to them. And then they, and I'm, yeah. I never come from the approach that you're broken in any way. Um, and you're yeah. not a problem to be fixed, but potential to be realized. And suddenly that mm. shift is freeing. But at the moment, because I am a, not a lone voice, because there are a group of people who say the same thing, but it's almost the people who've gone through the damaging cycle. They have to go through that to find me to accept what I'm yeah. saying may be true, that perhaps it's everyone else that's wrong, not them. And, yeah. and it sounds yeah. similar to what you're saying, that it's a shame that everyone has to go through maybe decades of fad dieting or yeah. restrictive eating or believing a food is intrinsically good or bad, that they have to get to that point of almost being at such a low ebb that they, they then come to you. <laughs> yeah yeah and that and i don't have to spill out the load of it i don't have to spill out any evidence or like none of that is really really matters it's what is going yeah. on with that individual and when we look at their own history and what's going on it's they're like yeah i can't keep doing this anymore this isn't working for me and so we need to find another way but it, yeah it's sad that it you know it is an industry-wide problem and and in terms of diet culture when when you look at the roots of it in terms of everything that's been going on with black lives matter there's a brilliant book that came out hmm, a few years a couple of years ago now and it's called fear in the black body and basically diet culture actually started back in the 1600s and is a byproduct of racism and patriarchy and it's just infiltrated into our system and it's 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 that you know that's where the problem is and and that is a huge ship to turn it's mm. not gonna i'd love to think that it will turn in my lifetime but i don't know if it will and, and so i'm doing my little bit with clients and chipping away and and spread and spreading that word and helping people break out of that cycle and not in, opt into that culture anymore not give it their money not fuel into that but it is yeah you have to protect your mental health as well when doing this doing this work because it is like swimming upstream mm. 
when the rest of the world is swimming downstream. Yeah, I, I hear you and that really resonate, resonates <laughs> with the work I do. But um, I think the wonderful thing is that everything starts with a few group of people saying something different. And we, we talk about, yeah. you know, clearly science to you and I, something that's important is that for a period of time, everyone, the sun went around the earth you know until someone said or, yeah. or they believed the earth was flat i know that's come back into popular opinion but yeah or like smoking you know like smoke we, we know more about smoking we know more about vitamin c we know more mm. about certain things and and even with the black lives matter movement that's been around for years and the same message has been trying to put across for years but it's been like something that's happened that's kind of accelerated it a little bit um and I'm watching all the news on the Black Lives Matter and I'm like, when is this going to happen for diet culture? Yeah, <laughs> when is that flick going to be switched? And I don't, I don't know, but I think a lot of people are becoming more aware of sort of body acceptance and body positivity and, and trying to be more who you are than, than trying to be something that someone else is telling you mm. should be. I, I, th I think that the goal in life, if I say there's any mark of success, and it's such a subjective thing I appreciate, is just to be the full expression of who you really are yeah. without, without yeah. any need for any tick box to be met of how you should look, how you should think, the career you should go into, what car you should drive, what clothes you should wear. If you can just be truly you and understand who that person really is, you're so free and you just don't need oh, anything else. It's so hard. It is hard. It is hard. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the yeah. um, sort of fully actualized human being at all, but, um, you know, because there is so much conditioning. I'm mindful yeah. of your time, Kat, but there's just one thing I'd, I'd like to just touch upon a little bit deeper, if, if we may, is um, around the yeah. topic of emotional eating. And would you be able to just kind of explain what that is and then maybe just expand about your approach towards emotional eating yeah um so i guess it could be argued that all eating has some sort of emotional attachment to it because if you think about from a young age in most cultures food is highly linked to emotions so if you're a child like you're a baby you'll cry when you want food you go to a kid's party, you get cake and pizza, you go to a wedding, a funeral, there's special meals in some form. Um, but I think emotional eating is given really bad press. Um, so I guess emo like eating in, on a basic level, food can be there as to give us nourishment, pleasure, but it can also be used as comfort as well. And sometimes food can be used as it's a really important part of the coping toolkit toolkit for someone and when someone is noticing that they're using food to soothe themselves comfort themselves it's a really great clue that it's your body's way of saying hey something's up like something's up here something needs addressing and if you think of your emotional coping toolkit like a toolbox that top layer of your toolbox, that little black tray or whatever that you have at the top, if you open your toolbox and food is that tray at the top, it's the thing that you go to most, then you just keep going there. And if we remove that top tray, 
took food away and you had to delve deep down into the depths of your toolbox and dig out tools that you've never used before, then that's really scary and that's really uncomfortable. So the work that I do, it's not about taking that, that food away. It's looking at layering in other mechanisms to support an individual. But most people come to me, a lot of people come to me and they'll say, I'm an emotional eater, like, like, that's my problem. I, that's, where I, that's what I need fixing. Um, and when we delve into it, actually, there are other things that have, have layered into that. And quite often, when we tap into those other layers, emotional eating disappears because that wasn't really the crux of the problem and what I what clients sometimes identify as emotional eating is actually just physical mm. hunger and this comes back to this interoceptive awareness and flexing that noticing muscle of really tuning in and noticing hunger how it shows up in the body where it shows up in the body but a classic example is if someone comes to me and they, they, if we look through their kind of classic day, they might start their day with a light breakfast, have a nice salad for lunch, try and avoid snacking in the day. And then maybe by the time the evening rolls around, get home from work or get through the front door and there's this urge to need to eat very quickly. And quite often, not enough food has been eaten throughout the day. So hunger hormones like ramped up, throw in the mix, maybe eating food that hasn't felt satisfying throughout the day, maybe making choices around food that the individual thinks they should eat rather than what's really gonna provide them with that enjoyment and satisfaction. Then throw in the mix a lack of permission around foods. Um, so that get home and there's that other you know, fun food at home there's cheese there's chocolate there's all the foods that you might be actively trying to stay away from it can really feel like a pet like what feels like emotional eating but all of these things together create this perfect storm for what feels like emotional eating so the physical hunger the lingering diet mentality that might be there pursuit of weight loss dieting is is strongly linked with emotional eating so there might be lack of permission around certain foods and quite often clients emotionally eat on foods that they wouldn't normally have in their diet. So it's usually the high fat, high mm. sugar foods that they're actively trying to avoid. Um, and then there may be a lack of basic self-care. So feeding themselves enough throughout the day, taking regular breaks, making sure they're eating regular meals and snacks throughout the day. So, so when we address physical hunger, permission around food, looking at other factors such as making time to eat in the day, having food available to honor hunger, then emotional eating quite often does dissipate. But if it's still there, then we would certainly work together to help um, address looking at other mechanisms. And if that's out of my remit, because I'm not a therapist, then I would point that individual in, in the direction of getting further support if we get to a point where actually we're not, we're not able to, you know, building all of the tools to support that individual does that make sense no no no, no, no. it, it makes perfect sense and what i loved you said at the end is that yeah. awareness of your sphere of competency you know where you know that someone needs more from than you you have the training or the ability to give and being able to point people in the right direction is so yeah. important um, yeah and I think that's yeah. often the mark of a really good professional in any trade is is knowing when it's time to to pass on 
skill set um, via another professional to to the client. So that is yeah, it's fantastic. Um, just to finish up, and it's been amazing. I could I could literally just ask you questions all day, but I appreciate you have a life to live. Um, <laughs> if you could recommend one book to the listeners, um, what book would that be? The book that I would recommend is Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. In fact, their fourth edition has just been launched today. So I've not even had access to it. So it sounds crazy recommending a book that I've not had access to. But um, their third edition is awesome. And they've just made some revisions to create this fourth edition. And so for anyone that's wanting to break out of a negative relationship with food, that's where I would where I would recommend starting. Brilliant. And if you could just share one message with the world, what would that message be? Ooh. I should have sent these in the sort of emails to you. I thought I'd just I'd just kind of attack you uh, with some random questions you weren't expecting. <laughs> that's okay. Well, a, that's a big one. I think in terms of dietary recommendations. I would always encourage people to focus on what they can add into their diet rather than what they can remove, um, which adds to your restriction. And so anyone looking to, yeah, increase, maybe increase their fiber intake in their diet to focus on adding in, adding in more fiber rather than taking something away because that, yeah, that tends to, uh, to leave people feeling deprived fantastic and if people want to find out more about the work you do where can they find you yeah so i am on instagram my handle is nude nutrition rd and my website is www.nudenutritionrd.com and i do have for anyone that's interested in the in going into the depths more of, of emotional eating I have a short course that I launched about three weeks ago now, and that goes into a lot more depth with a lot of actionable things to do alongside. So um, <clears throat> I've had some really great feedback on that. And I, yeah, I'm happy to jump on a free discovery call with anyone that's keen to chat about their own individual difficulties. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me today, Kat. I think it's been a really worthwhile and interesting discussion. And uh yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for no, having my me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, and good luck with the rest of the podcast series. I'm keen to listen. I think the neighbours have gone away with their streamers now. So what I need to do is just inform all, all my next door neighbours that you know for an hour or one week, you know please don't start cleaning the guttering or digging up the road or strimming your bushes. Um, yeah, it would yeah, be handy, but I think we've got away with that. Actually. It's been pretty, it's been quite quiet at my end. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. I think now summer's here. We're still all locked at home most of the time. And so people are just using it as an opportunity to, to get things done in the garden. Yeah. They they <laughs> Thank you so much, Kat. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.